0: It was all a pipe dream, watching bodyboarding up on TV Deep at Reef, watching tension repeats, eating bakery feeds at 18 Living the dream with no sunscreen, yeah we were so keen Surfing Aussie pipe, buying
1: Riptide Hey, okay, good day welcome to the Riptide Bodyboarding Podcast The home of bodyboarding Thank you for joining us on episode 38 of our Verbal Journaling And I'm your host, Luke O'Connor Well... The heart's starting to speed up a bit, ladies and gents. We have a craftsman on the podcast today, someone who's been shaping for well over 30 years and has probably shaped some of the best bodyboarders, the best bodyboard, sorry, for the best bodyboarders in the sport to date. Uh, He's currently residing at Avoca with a factory over in Indonesia with his resume stating of all the different locations he's shaped in from Hawaii, Australia, um, New Zealand, back in his hometown, home country, sorry. It's such a pleasure to have someone who really has shaped the sport as we know it today here on Luke's Lounge, and I'd like to introduce Nick Mesritz. How are you, sir?
0: Good, thanks, Luke. Geez, that was an introduction. My face is all hot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mate, I was actually kind of getting a little bit breathless just because... It honestly is such a pleasure, mate. Like after riding your boards down at the wave pool at the NMD Wave um, Pool party only about a month ago now, and just meeting you in person, myself and Elliot having a yarn here, and just how you were like a surgeon with the precision you were speaking of when it came to came to bodyboards in general, man. Like it was it was apparent when they to speak to you, there, and it's um it's so cool to have you on the body. So thank you again.
0: Thank you. Yeah, um, also the the 30 years I was going in my head calculating, going, shit, it's been that long. Like, (laughs) that's trippy too, you know, like, geez, I just turned 50 in Feb and then you add it up. So, yeah, it's
1: over 30 years. So, there's
0: a bit of knowledge there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there really is. So, I believe it all started back in Auckland in New Zealand and your father coming home one afternoon and telling you about this crazy factory he had, he had visited and they were making bodyboards. Could you tell us a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, you've done your research. Um, Exactly that. So I had been to Aussie for a holiday with my family and um, my cousin had a bodyboard and I sort of bought a bodyboard over there and, um, yeah, bought actually I bought, it was I remember, it was the Town and Country Surf Shop, Mermaid Beach. I bought a Mark Seven Churchill Fins. Uh, a board bag of Rashi and the, I think one of the first of the bodyboard mag- bodyboarding magazines with Mike on the cover. So that was it. I was a bodyboarder and came back to New Zealand and no one had a clue what I was doing. And every time I went to the news agency to ask for a bodyboard magazine, they said, yeah, we've got heaps. And my eyes would light up and it would just be bodybuilding magazines. So <laughs> yeah, but um, then my dad comes home one day. He had a courier business or a truck. He used to pick stuff up and he said, oh, there's a factory up in Burkdale they're making bodyboards, and I was like nah no way man that's all done in the states he said no I'm pretty sure it's it's boogie boards you know so I got him a push bike and just piss bolted up there and sure enough there was this factory where um they were making boogies and it was uh a guy called Rick Broderson who had worked for Tom Moray directly in his factory in Tamarack Beach in California and he'd come over to set up the um Australasian Moray factory and uh, that had not worked out, but he ended up buying the materials and machinery himself and set up his own factory. So, I begged him for a job after school job, and he said yes.
1: So that's where it all started. Insane, insane. So you started just on the production line, getting your hands dirty and getting a feel for what was going on. Yeah, I was a shit kicker. So I was, uh, I'd come in after school and um, you
0: know had to sweep the floors, clean everything up. Um, you know cut rails for the next day's production do different things like that so it was just yeah right at the bottom and um i nearly didn't last the week because rick showed me how to cut the rails and he said i want every rail perfect so i did that and cut every single rail it's because as best as i could super slow and the next day he's like what the hell did you do last night man you only cut like you know x number of rails. this is no good and i was like well i'm gonna be fired straight away but um yeah from that i quickly learned how to uh pick up the pace and um kept my job and the rest is history
1: why were you so so obsessed with the bodyboard you know because obviously you've you got a wonderful mind and you could have kind of set your set your talents towards anything why was it the bodyboard
0: uh so i thought that i was going to be a really good bodyboarder um you know my dream was like i'm going to go surf and pipeline represent new zealand and um surf at the pipe champion you know, pipe world titles and uh and that was my thing I'm going to be a bodyboarder. I'm going to be great and um as you as you know when you met me I'm not small so um when I got to Aussie I was my first flatmates were Michael Eppleston and Michael Moles who were on the pro tour at that time and of course Epo went on and won his, the world, Aussie's first world title but I turned up and I'd seen these guys in the magazines and they were um in the magazines, like Epo looked ripped and I thought he was huge because my heroes were all rugby players. And I turn up and he's like, G'day, mate, I'm Epo," And he comes up to like, you know, sort of my chin and I went, what? And then I was <laughs> surfing with the guys and realised that they're like leaps and bounds better than me and um, I'm way too big and way too shit. So pretty early on, um, I'd moved across to Aussie. Uh, so we were making boards for a company called Pipo at that stage in New Zealand. And, Ray Piper? Yeah, it was Paul Pipo then first. Oh, Pipo. Um, okay, that's right. Johnny Holmes. And one of the boys that I used to surf with back in NZ, he, in a roundabout way, met a guy, met John. John said, do you want to come over and set a factory up? Nick went. He said, Nick, do you want to come with me? And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And about three months later, I got a phone call and said, come over. So that's how I got to Oz. And yeah, but surfing with these guys at places like Banzai and out on the Central Coast and I quickly realized I was not good and not going to be, <laughs> even with all the practice in the world, not get much better. So that guy, Nick, he eventually had a blowout with the boss about six months in and he um, went back to NZ and then I think I was 18 years old and running a factory. So wow it was yeah, pretty cool. Like uh, as most 18-year-olds, you don't know, you don't care about anything, as in you're not, you have a vested interest in it. You're just doing your job and it was a perfect environment to experiment experiment with things and do things and um come up with you know a few different ideas and all that the guys used to make boards for back then were, um you know all experimenting and uh and I really liked that experimental side of things and just testing stuff and developing stuff and you know working on things and like we had the, like the first thing we got into there was the crosslink skins so we used to make the um the boards were non-crosslink, which is the material we call TCA, which is on most pro boards now. But we got the skin from a company in Aussie and it had a grip on it. So we, you know, pro, not pro surf, um, gorilla grip was popular at the time. So we called this stuff gator grip, but we got that material with the grip and that was sort of groundbreaking for the Rio Piper boards, which Piper became Rio Piper due to some trademark thing in Japan so it yeah, wow. so was the first where was the people thing people on
1: the board May I ask
0: to you, way before your time Luke. so uh <laughs> it was it was like a hard to say just like the rollers where they make the skins the skins are hot when they come through out of the extrusion machine and they had a textured roller so this textured roller would make a pattern on it with like you know thousands of tiny little like for want of a better word kidney pool like shapes on it and that was on one side of it and the other side was smooth so we could run it which way we wanted, we could have the grip side, or we could have the smooth side. So the rails were the smooth side, and then we'd flip it over for the uh, the
1: grip on the deck side. So wow, so the whole deck was covered in it. Yeah,
0: yeah, but it wasn't enough to like give you a rash because the Manta boards back in those days were made with EVA, which is um, the same thing that surfing deck grips are made out of. And it oh gave-
1: man, was this was were a couple of Moth Miller models made um, with this sort of deck on the um, the grip on the deck? Sorry. Because I, 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 remember having, um, yeah, that that sort of material you were speaking about before, how it came off the roller differently. Because I remember a couple of moth millers, and I had one of them, really like kind of wide, large bat tail number, but it had that um squishy almost kind of deck with the, the ruffled kind and of. That was feel the one like a sinuk sandal, right? yes yes yeah no
0: that was different so that was uh, um that was when the mantis started getting into crossing polypropylene skins i used to peel it up and it would just go crazy like thousands of noodles right tiny oh, little noodles yeah
1: that was exactly it yeah,
0: yeah that was sort of a few years before that but
1: okay it just time, was yeah.
0: cool um and yeah so it was that was the first thing we sort of experimented with and we tried all sorts of different channels because they were cool and I mean, the Americans were way ahead of it. We'd get the magazines and see Bat Tales and all these channels weren't even a thing when I first started. Then the BZs come out with them and it was like, ooh, channels. So we'd do that and there was a magazine that came out with a guy called, I think it was Steve Moran, and and he worked for Moray when Mattel had it. And he was in this lab coat. He was doing stuff with mesh and I was like, man, that looks cool. I want to get myself a lab coat. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I never went that far. So, yeah, I mean, a long-winded answer to your question. But um, I really love that side of things in developing it. So, and, you know, 18 running a factory without even knowing it, you're sort of cutting your teeth with someone else's money. And um, fortunately, it all worked out. So uh, making boards for Epo and Ben Holland and those guys, Chris Wan, and Chris Wan actually, um, he told me about the guys at Tube. So Manta gave me this offer to come and work for them, and uh, it was pretty good. I think I remember I remember meeting with um, Terry Fleming and his offside. I think his name's John Hubbard. He came up to to Avoca, took me out to lunch, and uh, they said, "What do you want?" And I was like, "I want five hundred dollars a week," <laughs> and they were like, "Sweet." And I was like, and I need a car. They're like, oh, you can use the team car on the weekends. And I want to. There, eh? I, reckon you, I reckon you undersold yourself there, eh? I
1: reckon you. I you undersold yourself. Well, I did
0: there. totally, hundred percent. But I, you know, my parents live back in NZ, and um, I had no idea, mate. I thought five hundred was heaps. So, uh, yeah. But here's exactly. a funny story on that. Unbeknownst to me, Epo had a thing with Manta that if he got me to come to Manta to sign, he would have got like a fifteen grand bonus
1: whoa so that was written in his contract if he got you over to the brand yeah he would have got 15 grand
0: i was like you're gonna share it with me He was like
1: nah was that back in the was that back in the 90s
0: yeah yeah for sure
1: bro 15 grand back then is a solid water cash eh?
0: yeah so i was gonna get 500 bucks a week and he was gonna get 15 g's
1: you were a big fish catch, but you just undersold yourself for your weekly wage, and he was yeah, able yeah. to get you over. God. Well,
0: what ended up happening anyway was Chris Wan told the Tubes guys about me, and I was like, California, that's where it's at. I'm going there. So I didn't sign the
1: Manta contract, and I went over to the States and worked at Tubes. Epic. That would be such a cool move because they're an iconic, iconic bodyboarding brand. Yeah, well,
0: they were um, – yeah, at that time, I didn't know a lot about them, but – um Chris just said there's a guy called Buzz and he's a genius and, you know, and I was just blinkers on for California. So unbeknownst to me, a guy picked me up, took me to San Diego. I'm thought, I'm in heaven, you know, warm beaches, nice looking ladies, Mexican food, like here we go. And then he goes, we live about six hours north. So we drove six hours to Morro Bay. It's got big nuclear chimneys like out of um, the Simpsons and it's freezing cold in the water so it's a full suit of winter and uh, summer and a, a full suit with gloves booties and a hood in, in winter so the exact opposite of what you're expecting yeah what i thought yeah and it almost reminded me of that movie salem's light it was a freaky place but um yeah so that was pretty the living sort of stuff was different to what i expected but the factory was pretty rad so working under buzz was was an eye-opener and that's really what taught he taught me how to shape and taught me all the nuances of boards and lamination and challenged me and berated me and abused abused me as in like, you know, he's a pretty volatile dude. But um that's where I had my grounding, my sort of education.
1: Why was he such a genius? Like what made him, you know, obviously sound like a bit of a crazy off the hand, off the cuff kind of dude, but like why was he a mentor? Um, so he was
0: mechanically minded. So he had actually got an internship at one of the big car companies. And But he turned it down because he was a surfer and he smoked his pot and he surfed up at a place, um, I can't think it was called, up sort of like towards Santa Cruz. And uh, he just loved surfing with his mates and doing that stuff when he was young, but he still had that mechanical mind. So when he, him and his partner, Ben Steelhead, bought a machine off someone that tried to have a bodyboard factory and they had a few rolls of skin. And they had a laminated machine and Buzz thought this is pretty crap. He had one old BZ board there and he reverse engineered it then figured out his whole process just on these few bits of machines and materials. And, um, and because like most factories, are lineage of, of the first factories that Tom Mora had and everyone copies that and it goes down from there, same, same but buzz didn't have access to that machinery or even see how they made the board. So he worked it out for himself and what he came up with was something totally unique and ingenious at the same time. So yeah, it was just a mechanically minded guy and maybe he took a bit of acid back in the day and that helped him too. So he had, was a free thinker and a Moss landing. That's where he was Moss landing. So he used to go up there and just live up there and surf. So yeah, sort of uh not a wild child, but experimental dude and loved his jazz music and loved his race cars and mountain biking and all the mechanical side of things. So it was a perfect No, he had so
1: many passions. Sandy was such an accomplished fella. Yeah, yeah, he's cool. That's cool and it. scary. Yeah, and so what were the, you know, negative aspects of that kind of tutelage from, from Buzz? Like what, was, what were the moments where you were kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm pulling up Anki and getting the fuck back home?
0: Oh, so it wasn't that. What it was was that, so his partner had told Buzz that this kid from New Zealand wants to come and learn from you. And then he had told me that I want you to come to the factory and increase our production and get the production up because you're coming from factories that make a lot more boards than we do. Our process is really slow. So it it took us years after it actually worked there for us to butt heads and figure that out. And, um, yeah, so, you know, it was basically I'm coming to learn from him and... I thought I was helping them so it was this weird sort of dynamic in that regards but he was a volatile guy so he would you know some guys something happens he'd just go yeah man you're a dickhead this guy like what the fuck Nick?" what the no just go like hammer and tong but I don't really react to that stuff so it didn't bother me I was just like yeah whatever man you have your rant and uh I'll keep doing my job but what did what what worked for us was that he said to me right at the start, he said, you're going to make all the team boards in your own time. I'm not paying you for that. You know, you come and you learn how to shape and then you do all your boards in your own time. So when I would finished work and I didn't have any mates or that, then I'd just stay in the factory and make all the boards for the team guys. So, you know, within, I guess, sort of six months, I was making boards for – we had a pretty awesome team back then. So it was Paul Roach, Karl Maligro, Jeff Hubbard, uh, there was Ross, there was Arco, there was Jack, Pat Corwell, those sort of, you know, names from back then. So that was pretty rad making boards. For just those
1: to guys. name a few, like you would yeah. have just, you got Hall of Famers lit it all through there. That would have been insane. What was the feedback you were getting from the boards? Yeah, yeah. So fresh well, into Loved
0: him and Kyle loved him, and that was all it needed. You know, I think because I was a younger guy too, and whereas if they dealt with Buzz, Buzz would put his take on it, you know, and do kind of what he wanted, whereas I would just make what they wanted. So maybe that was it and, yeah, being a bit more their age and that with the communication and um, I just love doing it and they, they like what they got, so it went
1: from there. Do you have fond memories sitting around the shaping bay, having a arm with all these pros and nutting no, out they, ideas? And
0: they did like really come to start. the factory. So Morro Bay... Yeah. As I said, it's like about five hours north of LA and about six or 7 I'll probably get my numbers wrong here, out of San Diego. So yeah. Kyle and that were in Hawaii. Um, Paul was down in Seaside, Cardiff, around that area. So they they came to the factories a little bit, but not that much. They just rang up on the phone and said, this is what I need. I didn't even think we had email back then. It was all fax. And they'd just call up and go that. And i go, yep, sweet. And then um away we went. It wasn't until I opened up all. Oh, to set up a custom shaping bay in Hawaii that I got to live with these guys and talk and start to have that collaboration, make a board, then surf it the next day. And that was sort of the next step in the shaping career.
1: Where, where on earth were you in Hawaii setting up a shaping bay?
0: So the shaping bay was in Honolulu and the house we had was at Sunset Beach. So another one of those sort of stories where um, Roddy and Nick are going to go to Hawaii, set up this factory. We've got a house for you, got a car for you. And all good, then you turn up and the factory's in Honolulu and the house is at sunset and the car we have has got a cracked head gasket and it's for the whole team and the house probably had about 20 guys living in it. So before all the Hurley houses and that it was Billabong had one, Quickie had one, So tube has got a house and we had all those names I said before, plus we had Brazilians and Crispin Hughes and Aussies and it was about five to a bedroom. So cool. If you know, if you're grommy but not cool if you're trying to work. And then they had to use the car, so I ended up having to catch the bus, which cost a dollar per leg, but it would take about an hour and a half to get from Sun North Shore to the South Shore. Then you'd work in the factory and you'd catch the bus all the way home. So they were long days.
1: Yeah, so that was all along the Kamehameha Highway because I, would, yeah. I reckon yeah. in a like in a car, surely from sunset to Honolulu, like we just average traffic in between 40 to 50 minutes but yeah yeah that's a bus could take the, two hours
0: and if you got the wrong yeah, bus definitely man, you end up in some dodgy joints like uh, mililani i think was one of the places i went through I Was like whoa it's pretty heavy i don't know
1: what it's like now but back then it was heavy yeah yeah no for sure man some of the rural areas out there are definitely struggling and also just to kind of tee up the numbers for those bus routes over in hawaii it's so <laughs> fucking difficult yeah. i remember me and my partner had us. um amongst them, the North Shore, and we went to that uh, shopping centre, all the direct outlets that everyone goes to. It's very cheap shopping for what, you know, all the goods are, like Vans, yeah. Converse, Levi's, blah, 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 blah. Um, Victoria's Secret, God, my wife went crazy with Victoria's Secret stuff. Um, and just, uh, yeah, I couldn't believe how difficult it was for two simple Australians, I guess, to navigate their way around public transport. Like, we didn't mind... Over in Japan, like you have the subway there and the bullet trains, you can navigate that. You know, over in Canada, Europe, we just struggled in Hawaii with buses for some reason.
0: Yeah, it's still it's country, as they say. It's country. It's like whatever. It's mellow. It's it's you know what you know. No one really helps you much. Was like you know. I know Japan. You mentioned Japan. Their their service and their help and assistance is amazing, and their systems yes. are easy to follow. So, true. Like I say, it was a dollar, so the price was right. But, um, yeah, it took a while.
1: (laughs) So Hawaii's set up, man. You're in there. You've got your life sorted and you're shaping away. What's what's the vibe like now, you know? Like how have you stepped up your shaping game and how do you feel your career's going? And, you know, do you ever just check yourself at this given stage after being, like, all around the world, it it seems, shaping already at such a young age, just going, is this even real?
0: No, because you're still in it. You're like you're still a kid just going like, you know, um, it's a job. Like I've never, it's not, career's funny. It's happy when, you, when you're older, it's a career. But when you're a kid, it's a job. So I've got this job of making boards like anyone else is working in a factory and it's exactly the same thing. So you're not really absorbing things as you're going through it. It's just what you do. And it's not until years later when you look back and go, man, that was awesome. What an amazing experience and opportunity it was. So, What happened was that when I turned up to the factory, I thought it was all set up with, um, you know, orders to make into shops and all that sort of stuff. And we got there and they're like, okay, right here, where's your order forms? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, you guys haven't been selling the boards. They're like, these were the guys in Hawaii. I was like, they were like, no, we don't even have order forms. I was like, shit. So, and Buzz was like, look, you've got to sell boards to make money. We'll give you a little bit of money, but you're on your own. I was like, oh, okay. So what happened was, Once we got the factory set up, everyone came in for the winter. So we had, you know, Aussies, Brazilians, as I said, Hawaiians and that. So I'd make the boards for the tubes guys, but I was selling boards to everyone else. So there was a bit of a kerfuffle because I was making boards for Lansing and people like that, exact colors as mores, but they weren't mores. They were were tubes, tubes boards. We just didn't brand them. And I remember Lansing got a board made by me and a board made by Russ Brown at Turbo. And he rung me up and sort of, I'd started the board and he's like, have you started that board, man? And I was like, yeah, he goes, oh shit. Cause he got the board from turbo and apparently it was a dog. So he goes, okay. So he comes up and gets the board and, um, uh, he's like, whoa, this thing's rad. So he goes and surfs it. And I remember the magazines that came out six months later. It was just, that board was everywhere. And he just drawn the logos on by hand. So that's how I made money sort of for like the first three months was just selling to all the pros that were there. And, um, that worked out really good. But, again, it was a job to me to pay money so I could eat food. But looking back on it, it was an amazing experience and opportunity, yeah, you know, just shaping boards for so many different people.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, comparing these days, I guess maybe not so much right now, but say through the 2000s and comparing back in the 90s, what was the amount of um, pros going over to Hawaii? Like, you know, we're still getting flocks going over trying to prove themselves at some of the world's gnarliest waves, or was it a small? No, it, it was a
0: bit smaller because that, that really, I think that was more late 90s, you know. And so, Ben, in that same winter, Ben Player came over and he would have been about 15, I think, something like 15 or 16. And he was under the, the Quicksilver had their little house with their kids, but they were all like super respective. And that was like Crawley, Murray Bell, Ben Toby Player. Um, I think Garth, they were all there. Garth McGregor, and um, they were respectful. And because Dave Appleby was their team manager, he nurtured them. But he also told them, you know, taught them the right way. And it happened, like most kids that came after that didn't have someone teach them about respect and knowing their their place. They were just like this marauding pack of of Aussie like killer bees, just boom, come up and you know fill up the lineups and do Australian larrikin stuff, and maybe put a few people's noses out of joint. But, yeah, it was a lot less. So you had your Ross, Ross Hawks, your Epos, your Bullets, um, those sorts of guys that had earned their right to serve pipe. And then Epo was sort of that bridge between the, the new guard of Ben Ryan and Kingy and, um, and the old guard that I just mentioned. So um, when the kids came in, they, the Quicksilver guys came first and then some, some more teams after that. And then probably five years after that, it just went nuts with, you know, it looked like 100 Aussies. I couldn't say how many. But I remember when the guys started winning contests like Kingy and Ben and that were getting swamped up the beach by Aussie contingents. So that came a bit later.
1: So you were still shaping at this time and the numbers kept growing and you're obviously pumping out more boards and more boards. How did the factory go from there?
0: No that's exactly it didn't happen. so what happened was I realized that um un- unfortunately at that time, tubes had invested heavily into clothing and it tanked, so there was problems between the two um shareholders back in California, so that was sort of falling apart and I was just like I had a girlfriend at the time, and she'd come over and then I just you know went back um to Aussie to sort of sort that out and then um. Broke up two weeks later, but that's the way those cookies crumbled, but that was fine. So I just needed to get out of there. It wasn't working. I wasn't getting enough money um, to live. And then it was the end of the season. Everyone was going home and I had to look for a place to live myself. So I remember looking in a a box apartment in Honolulu. I had to use a toilet and bath, a toilet from Subway, which was next door. Then I had to join the gym to use a shower and cook on a hot plate. And I was just like, nah, this is not where I want to be. Wow. Uh, And I wasn't living on, on North Shore was gone. So I was out of there, man. So there was a company called Fangs and they used to make flippers, uh, swim fins, and they were the Rio Piper distributor in Japan. The owner a guy called Michael Parr, he was in Hawaii and he said, Look, Nick, we've opened a factory up in Brookvale and Manly and um a few of your old mates from Rio were there and if you want a job there's one there. So I thought, Okay. So I um so took ticket back to back to Oz and moved in with Dave
1: and at Narrabeen there and went to Fangs no way and so from there on in you're back in you're back in the land of milk and honey you're back in Australia are you happy about that are you, are you happy about coming back from being abroad and trying to craft overseas like are you looking to start something here with your own brand is something brewing what's the next step
0: yeah, so Fangs unfortunately was doomed before. You know, when I got there, this guy invested a million dollars in machinery, and I walked through the factory and just went like he's been taken for a ride. It was just the shittiest Like He spent it was a robotic arm to cut the boards that they used to use for welding cars, like spot welding cars, and that was never going to work. And a gas powered flam laminator that doesn't work, and it was just a disaster. So I knew straight away it wasn't going to last. And I got an offer from WAMO, uh, was it Mattel, to go work in Mexico for More. And um, that was looking pretty good. So back to the States, living in San Diego, and then driving across the border to Tijuana for the factory there. And at that stage, you know, Mora had the best team. That was Mike, Lanson, Bullets, Spencer, a skipper. Um, yeah, heaps of money, heaps of technology. They just bought out the launch vehicle those guys were still the pinnacle. So that was like the dream job. Um, and then Tubes heard about it and said, hey, why don't you set a factory up in Australia? We'll send you over laminated materials and you can set one up there. So I was like, eh, cool, yeah, I'll do that. So um, said to, thanks, but no thanks to, to, to Moray. Uh, got the factory materials that set up set a factory in the central coast which became mes boards and we did tubes and we did the quicksilver cue boards so that was pretty cool um and
1: 20s sorry sorry i didn't mean right mate but um what what year was this so i can just get my bearings
0: this would be about 1995 okay cool sweet okay yeah so i'm like 20 22 23 and um
1: You've done so much already for 22 It's crazy sort
0: to talk about it. You're like shit,
1: man. It's yeah. No wonder you've like risen to the top of the industry. You're one of the biggest stakeholders, man. Like this is incredible to hear. You 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 you're not even getting to an age of you know thirty to forty where most men establish themselves in some sort of position that they've been striving for. Do you know what I mean? You make it sound
0: sound better than what it is <laughs> giving me too much credit because i had no idea about business all i knew was to make boards so i will say we made very good boards and i had a pretty rad factory i had hayden bunting toddy quigley um yeah a few mates like scotty woods and that came and helped me maddie raywood from um from rio and i set up with a family uh a couple of brothers from a family of of my ex-girlfriend and um we set the factory up in partnership with those guys and uh yeah, having Dave Appleby at Quicksilver, who was you know always a good buddy, and um he was always pushing hard with the quickie team. So when we was making the boards there, we had yes, the Quicksilver was that team again. So you had um again Ben, Toby, Player, Crawley, um, Garth McGregor, Murray Bell, uh, Mandy Zierin. and um then on the King, we had Kingy on Mesboards and he was with Billabong. And we had Bullet and he was with Rip Curl. So when you went to a, ma- a Rip Type magazine in those days, you would see, you know, Ben, Toby, all those guys for Quickie, plus quickie ads and you'd see Kingy with Billabong and you'd see Bullet everywhere, like Bullet was the man. And I had this little stamp made up, little Mezman Man stamp and I put it on the bottom of the board where I thought it would get the most exposure. So although the board said, yeah, boards was a quick silver logo, obviously Tubes. You know, with and Ripker was on Bullets boards and Kingies had Mez and Billabong, but for, you know, everyone was doing Airs back then. So the Airs, you'd always see that logo. So you just turned the page and it was like Mez, 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 Mez. Um, plus we had the custom business. So we weren't the first to do that. Manta had it before us and there was another guy in Cronulla doing it as well. Um,
1: Who was that we, in Cronulla?
0: Uh, I Andrew, I can't think of a second name, but um he was an ex sort of, I think X-Mantor, X Felucca guy. Veluca was a company in mascot that used to make R Core and they would made the wingnut boards. Remember the wingnut grommet boards? Yeah, yeah. Again, before your time, but the first they were the first of the 200 dollars boogie boards that came out. So before that, they were really expensive, but they bought out a hundred and ninety-nine dollar Grommy board. They were, were they soft. the
1: ones with, you know, those big nose? Big um, noses, Yeah, pages, yep. yeah, like, yep. yeah. And they just smashed black. it. Like
0: 37, 38s, I think 38s and 40s, and they were the first small boards. Because even back then, Luke, everything was like a 43, you know, and yeah. then tubes bought like a 42 and a 41, and then Manta had this. Before that time, Manta had these 38s and 40s. So wing that would have been the highest-selling board by miles for a number of years until Epo. What is world title?
1: Just to interrupt your story, Nick, I wanted to ask about the board sizes just before we go any further because I've been, it's been itching at my mind for so long and I've been trying to, um, you know, uh, experiment with different sizes and, and obviously different tail shapes. What's the most common size that you shape? You know what I mean? Like as in don't worry about people's height or weight or all their different specs. What do you, What's like the highest selling Size in the NMD range or the verse range? Or- Always 41.5. Always 41.5? Yeah. It so sounds so just clean just and six. crisp off the tongue, eh? It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's just the one that's sort of like,
0: it's not a 42, 42 is too long, 41 is too short, go to 41.5. So that has been 41.5 and black deck skins. <laughs> They're the biggest sellers by a country mile.
1: Yeah, wow. Okay, cool. That's great. That's great info. Sorry to interrupt, man, I just, I, I had mm-hmm. to ask it because I've been thinking about it for so long and, um, yeah, anyway, please proceed.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the, um, the factory, So as I said before, you give me too much credit, so the boards, we were humming with the boards, we were making, yeah, really good boards, um, we started putting stringers in boards, which was Tubes technology from Buzz, but I remember going to it. We used to have like an industry meeting back then and you have all you know, the big players, your Mantas and your Rios and all that and the guys that ran more, and remember sitting in the back behind them and they were sort of talking to each other and shot, making sure I could hear it and they're just going like, oh, who want to start a bodyboard company now? Like, you know, they're not going to last, just basically aimed at me. And when we started doing the stringers, Manta actually sent out a, um, a newsletter to all their retailers saying that we use polypropylene core, we don't need sticks up the bum of our boards. That was the actual words they used, and someone sent it to me. I was just like, wow, like, you know, and then an older person's <laughs> If they're doing that, they're worried. So um, I was like, cool, so we're doing the right stuff. But we were humming, and then it got to winter, and we were like, oh, what do we do now? Because, you know, it was so seasonal. So Japan was big, but we didn't have much foothold in Japan because uh, the tubes, USA guys would supply Japan with tubes boards. And Quicksilver and that weren't established yet enough to get their program. It was just authorized by Quicksilver International for Australia only, so we weren't allowed to sell them anywhere else. And um, so we got to winter and the custom business kept us through, but we just went from killing it to nothing. And then we choked to get through winter and we went to summer again and killed it and then went to nothing each winter. So we were finding it really hard to sort of balance the business because we needed all the guys to work for us during summer Then we had to struggle to keep them on board and pay them during winter. So it wasn't um, making a lot of money, that's for sure. I think I the last year I worked there, which was 1999, uh, my tax return total income was $19,000. So uh, I was hearing all these crazy stories like Mez has got a Mercedes and Mez has got a house and Mez does this. And I'm thinking like, (laughs) that ain't the truth. (laughs)
1: <laughs> but you're still working tooth and nail by the sounds of things like oh, to build yeah, the business yeah, yeah. up and pump out all the boards. Why do you feel at that time there wasn't a profit margin then? Was it just like the, the nature of bodyboarding, you know, like
0: I wasn't a good at business. business. I didn't know what I was doing. So like I said, I could make the boards, but I had no clue how to run a business so that, the partners ran the office side of things and yeah, it wasn't their fault, but we just didn't know what we we're doing, didn't know how to balance things, didn't know how to sell things properly internationally. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so ultimately that partnership failed and I went back to New Zealand with my tail between my legs to work back at Brody's. So um yeah, it was nineteen
1: ninety-nine. Yeah, wow, okay. So you've gone back home, you've learned obviously so much over the last decade, and you've taken in so much from so many masters of the craft like i can only imagine the the amount of cool techniques that were shown to you over this over this time and you know the the little one percenters that just make your job so much easier and um and just really produce what you have for you know th- over 30 years in front of you today so when you've when you step back into new zealand man did you want to keep shaping did you feel like you might or want to do something different or was
0: like I said, it was still a job. It was just a job to pay, pay the bills.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the, it, it wasn't really a passion at this stage yet? It was
0: a passion that I enjoyed, but it, it's still that thing. No matter what you do, you've got to pay bills. You know, you've know, you got to you know, live. And it's all I knew since I left school. So um, I'd never thought of anything else. And uh, I just kind of like not drifted, but I just seemed to bounce from place to place to place. And wherever I went, I learned something even if the company failed like uh, you learn from companies like fangs that fail about investing in the wrong technology you, know, you learn about companies when tubes when they suffered from the clothing like stick to what you know um i learned from rio pipo like you know you've got to stay connected to what you do don't think you're, you're bigger than the industry itself don't think you know at all and when i went back to new zealand unfortunately rick my old boss gave me a job and um they had the Moray contract for all their high end boards then, so I just sort of lucked straight into that. Became the you know, a Moray Mez collaboration with those guys and um and credit to Rick that's that I was at a point where I owed money. My wife, girlfriend now wife bailed me out, you know, helped me out with that. She moved back to New Zealand with me, um, and I sort of collect recollected myself and um, the factory wasn't set up, you know how I how I'd set a factory up, but I just had to roll with it. And um and that that period in New Zealand taught me too about just, you know, running a bigger factory because Rick's factory had like you know sort of I'd gone from running Mare's boards, which we had at a maximum twelve, whereas Rick's would have up around thirty people and produced a lot more boards and a lot more scale. So running Mm. that was pretty cool. And then from there we just bounced to Indonesia, which just happened again. So um up in end I was BZ I remember they had uh, they were the first ones so maybe around that 98 97 98 uh, a Chinese company came around to all the factories in Australia showing this board and I remember Dave brought it into me from these people and it was super heavy and you know rocket and horrible and I laughed and went haha what a piece of shit but The guys at BZ at the time looked at it, and there was guys there clearly enough to go, yeah, the board's not very good, but they looked at the price. I didn't look at the price. Again, like didn't know what I was doing. They looked at the price and went, holy shit, this is like half of what our boards cost. So they, Scott Burke from BZ, he went across to the States, uh, sorry, to uh, China, into Shenzhen, and uh, they partnered with the factory BZ, who was smart, and they produced BZ boards in the Chinese factory. And the board quality was awesome because Scotty B knows what Bina he's doing. doing. And once yeah. that. Movement, Damien King, what up, King? When he's toe out, made my dick sing. Bunch of skits, cunts in the barrel stolen. Big
1: ball. Yeah, sorry for that interruption, everyone. We we're just speaking about um, BZ producing boards over in China. Nick, good to have you back, mate. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Powers of modern technology. Uh yeah. So <laughs> B Z got these, yeah, these boards were made in China and they were awesome quality and um yeah, very cheap. So there was two trains of thought. There were the ones in Aussie, Yamantas and Rios that try to sort of stick it out in Aussie and full credit to them. Um and they actually ran ads in Tide magazines saying that, you know, our boards are made in Australia and they're not made in Asia and all this stuff. But at the end of the day it just came down to price and um the quality was equal and the, the price was cheaper out of China so um, yeah fortunately Manta fell by the wayside Rio fell by the wayside uh, the company I'd left they became foreplay from tubes they turned into foreplay they fell by the wayside um, I mean Manta's still around today and so is foreplay but it's, they're not a production company they the guy that bought those two companies got rid of all the manufacturing and everything's you know, produced in Asia and uh We were the same in New Zealand, so uh, we were making for a lot of different brands, but we just couldn't um, compete with the Chinese or Asian-made boards. So in a roundabout way with a few different guys, the factory was moved over to uh, Indonesia, and um, I went with it. So that became the next chapter. That was in 2002.
1: And how was it going from the temperate waters of Australia all the way up to the tropical balmy, um, beautiful swaying ocean of Indonesia, like that would, have been, that would have been a bit of a sea change for you?
0: Yeah, so here's the thing. Everyone thinks that we're in Bali and, um, you know, even my friends here, like, you know, they're, they're like, oh, mate, enjoy Bali for a month or whatever. You know, how long I'm up for a working stint. And it's like our factory is at a place called Surabaya, which is the capital of East Java. So it's about five hours drive in a direct line above Garajigan G land. So it's a big industrial city, um, population around 8 million, um, no beaches, no surf, uh, no parks, uh, not a lot to do. So um, we did have the luxury of going to Bali on weekends um, when we did, but when we first set the factory up, myself and Dan Serves and my wife Kelly, we were all up there. But I think we pretty much worked seven days a week for two years straight. So um, we weren't hitting the beach much.
1: Wow, that's inc- incredible because that's the exact opposite of what I'd expect. I'd be thinking you would have access to trot down the road every afternoon after wiping the sweat off the brow and all the foam off the stiff upper lip and and get a wave. That's insane. And they're 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 pretty st- um, strict over in Jakarta. Hey, like it's a um, pretty much Muslim based society.
0: Yeah, Indonesia is the most popul- populous Muslim nation on earth. And I think the total population is around 280 million and almost 80, 90% are Muslim. Um, but like any religion, Luke, uh, there's a few nutcases that ruin it for everyone else. Like as a religion, it's a pretty awesome one to sort of observe in over the 20 plus years of being up there. Um, yeah, nice people uh pretty much don't drink alcohol. Um, and when they pray, like the, the whole salat, the praying five times a day, when you think about it, they stop work, they wash themselves. So there's a clean aspect of that. And then the the praying action itself is actually a stretching regime. Yeah, they're up, they're down, they stretch forward. They get up, they stand up, they move. So yeah, these things we should be doing in the West. You know, We should be stopping within an eight-hour workday, getting up, moving, have a stretch, you know, clean ourselves and whatever. So when you analyze it like that and observe it, it's actually quite cool. Um, As I said, there's a few idiots that ruin it for everybody else, but I've never had a problem.
1: Oh, man, I don't think I was really insinuating that. I, I, I definitely back the culture. It's more so... Um, thinking about how strict they are with, you know, certain things and, and, and different ways of life, like adapting from the west to the east can not be difficult, but sometimes um, you yeah, No, no, no
0: you, you're cool. Like I wasn't meaning that. It's the most people think like that, you know, especially with, you know, 9-11 and those sorts of things, everyone thinks that, yeah. you know, Every yeah. Muslim's complete lunatic, which is not the case. I was yeah. Yeah, the stereotype hangs on to that, so, and, and that was me too. Like you know, the whole time you're thinking, Jesus, like it's just so foreign. But um, yeah, like they're, they're not they're not bad. They're pretty moderate. Indonesia, um, they're nothing like you know the Middle East or even Malaysia's more more strict than are here. So
1: pretty easygoing. Um,
0: yeah, as I said, never had a
1: problem. And so for two years straight, you were setting up this factory your wife was coming um, backwards and forwards, I believe, or or was she located? She was with
0: me the first two years, so she was up working in the office and um, doing that, and then Dan and myself were on the factory floor. So the other thing too was another sort of repeat of Honolulu where our factory, for some bloody unknown reason, was up in the foot of a volcano, and it was a minimum drive, hour and a half to the factory, and an hour and a half home, and if it rained, which we have the monsoon season, it could be two or three hours so everyone sort of heard these nightmares about Jakarta traffic. Well, Surabaya is very similar. So, um, you'd be up at five, and you'd be getting to factory maybe around sort of seven thirty. You know, seven to seven thirty, and then you'd leave the factory at six, and you get home about eight. So it was a it was a a grind. Wow, and you just do that day in day out. Day in day out. We did have a driver. You know, it wasn't like I was driving, so that made it a little bit more bearable. But um. Yeah, early days, just needed to get the factory set up and um, and sort of, yeah, we, we had a reputation from New Zealand, but from the old boss sort of running that one into the ground, we lost it. So we had to sort of start from scratch with new staff and build our business up and build a new clientele. And fortunately, Julio from World Body Board sort of knocked on the door early on and interested to distribute NMD, and um, he also bought with him Mike Stewart. So that was sort of our first big customer. And, uh, you know, we would, like, this is 2003, 2004, and they used to order, like, between two models. There was a a Mike Stewart comp, and there was an NMD spec, and they would go into surf, dive, and ski, and we'd do probably around 6,000 of each board, just into surf, dive, and ski back then, which was that just got wow. the business started and um, set us on our way.
1: Mate, I'm, I'm just thinking about your location and you know the two years of striving to get your your factory up and running to a standard where you know you'd be happy to continue on. Like what what was um what was the what was the conditions like getting your equipment in and what struggles. Did you oh. run into trying to get that aboard, you know, from That's all crazy. around the world like, and yeah, the best equipment obviously and and what you well, needed We didn't. To... We had
0: shitty equipment. We had mm-hmm. shitty equipment from New Zealand. Like, you know, I'll be honest, really? it was shitty. And um we're trying to use these like machines that were like eighteen years old. And uh I remember like I won, yeah, you know, I've got it, as everyone, you've got by that stage I started to sort of have a reputation. I sort of bought into it probably a bit too much and Riptide back then used to have Shaper of the Year awards and all that. And I won like the first three and then Toddy won the next two. And I was just like so dirty, not on Toddy, but just the fact that, you know, I, I wasn't making good boards. It wasn't anything against anybody else. It was just that I'd gone from having a good factory on the central coast, having this big factory, but it wasn't hitting the mark. So, um, the first thing I did was beg Buzz to make me a laminator and, um, which he thankfully did. So once we had that, we started to, um, you know, get the rockers right and dial the boards in. So that was the first step. And then I started eating, you know, some decent materials. And, um, yeah, but in terms of like, say the hardship of it all, the main thing was the heat. You know, it was like we come from Aussie, which is hot, but it ain't Indo hot. Like Indo is 33 degrees every day and 80% humidity. And when you're making boards with laminators, it sets up around the 40s. So, Sweating bullets used to have the old blue singlets just saturated with sweat. and I had the Dennis headband on because, as you know, I'm follically challenged and the sweat was just in the eyes and you had them on the forearms too because you just weren't used to that heat. Um,
1: Yeah, the humidity kills you away. Like Australia has humid areas up north, but you're so right when you get that kind of indo-humidity in that weather, it just stings you away. Like by the afternoon, you're so dehydrated.
0: Yeah, it's heavy and then... Language, you know, we speak English, they speak Bahasa Indonesia. So, um, so you know, we've got the travel, we've got the shitty factory, and then we've got a language barrier. So, um, that was interesting. One thing that was good is like Dan's about six foot four, I'm six foot two. So, we could actually, with our staff, we could puppet them, basically stand behind them and grab their hands and teach them how to do the, the various things, like just the timing and the application and the pressure and how to do it all because we're physically bigger than them. And it's like teaching, like, you know, not to disrespect them, but teaching children because they've got a children like stature, they're a lot smaller. So we're yeah. doing those things, but I reckon the first 40,000, 20 oh, maybe 20,000 boards, Dan and I pretty much built by hand. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting few years. But uh, as I said, little by little, we started to get the um, – we started to be successful in that we got more customers and more boards and we developed them mar- up. Like our markets, our customers worldwide, uh, even from, tubes, uh, from Pride came on board for Europe, um, started getting to the States with different things. Eddie Solomon came on board. Um, oh, epic. All that sort of stuff. And then we – as we got more boards, we – yeah, I think it t- took us five years to turn a profit, um, and then from there we, you know, we started to, we moved factories. We moved out from the godforsaken, full of the mountain, and we moved back down in towards Surabaya, into this, by the airport, more centralised. So that kind of travel down, down travel time down to about an hour, <laughs> not a, two hours, and um, I was able to get a CNC machine to cut the boards and that was the first thing that sort of really set us on our way. What's and a CNC then, machine? So a CNC machine is, stands for C- computer numerical controller and they've been around for a long time. They used to cut you know, mill steel, cut doors, cut all sorts of parts. I mean, nowadays they cut wings for airplanes and those things, but the three axis CNC machine was pioneered by Mike Stewart and a friend of mine called Brian Peterson. And they had a company called Energy Boardworks, which was Mike's first foray into his own board company. So Mike had left Moray. He'd gone into Energy Boardworks with a guy from, I think his name was Walter Graddick or Graddick from Foam Design, Brian Peterson, who had worked at Tubes and worked with me there. And uh, he'd actually went to Hawaii after me and he came and joined Mike. And then they got this CNC machine set up and, Brian's a very cluey guy, and they worked out how to um, shape the boards with that. So basically, you got a table or a bed. the The cores are vacuumed onto the bed. It's registered so the machine knows where, it, like where it cuts. And if you tell the machine works on three axis X, Y, Z, so one moves the machine up and down, one moves it side to side, and the Z axis moves the router up and down for different heights. So, basically, if you said X is 22, Y is 112, and Z is 32, the cutter moves there. And then if it wants to move the next step, it's, you know, it's 131. The Z axis stays the same, but it's incremental inputs, which make the cutter move from point to point. And as that moves from point to point, you use CAD programs to design the boards, and they generate the program, the cutting path, or the toolpath, and the toolpath gives it X, Y, and Z coordinates, and that gets fed into the machine, and that's how it drives it to cut the board. So it's it's um, very accurate. You can fully design your programs with your CAD systems, um, and then the CAM, which is the manufacturing side, converts it into the, the toolpath, and away you go.
1: Yeah, wow. That kind of just blew me away then. I almost lost you halfway through there.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing. To, it's, it's easy to show somebody. It's hard to talk about. But um, yeah, basically, if, it, if your fingers are out ahead and you tell it to go X1, X2, X3, it'll move one, two, three. If you tell it to move Y, one, two, three, it'll move up. And if you tell it to move Z, 1, two, three, it'll rise up, to you know, up in the air. So that's Sweet. in a nutshell. And you're just using that coordinate and imagine a table and every inch on that or millimeter on that table has a coordinate, x and Y coordinate. So you can basically make that cutter move anywhere within that table. But what we're doing is using a program to tell it specifically where to go to create a board shape.
1: Yeah. Wow. So it's pretty much a mathematical equation of getting it like it's in. So you you would be putting similar coordinates in mapping out your area and then knowing if you've, you know, X X is meeting Y on the axis. You can move down to you know T meeting U on the axis, and you're going to get a different part of the board, and you can. No, it's just
0: X and Y is two. So Matt, let's say if you've got a and your phone right. So you got your phone. If it's going to move up and down the phone, that's Y. If it's going to move side to side on the phone, that's X. But as let's say if we start on the left hand side. X1 is right on the left-hand side. X2 starts to move it. X3 starts to move it across to the right side. So, oh,
1: but if yeah, I want to I... move
0: it to Y up, I can move it up or down based on the, that coordinate there. And the yeah, Z actually lifts it up above it.
1: So you wouldn't be going through the alphabet and, and blah, blah, blah. No, right? no, no. There is, there is yeah, five-axis
0: yeah. machines, which, you know, a lot of axes, which is even more harder to control. But,
1: I mean, it, it's it
0: sounds technical, but the programs, like there's a program called Shape 3D, which is – It's a surfboard shaping program, but it's pretty amazing. And that lets you fully design your surfboard, bodyboard, kneeboard, kiteboard, paddleboard, whatever. And then it generates the toolpath and that tells the controller how to cut out the board. So it's been made easy for us, that's for sure.
1: That's really cool. And so integrating this technology in, did you instantly see an improvement in your product and the ease and, you know, the ability to, to produce boards quickly?
0: uh speed wise yes and no but accuracy the main thing it gives you is accuracy and you know that what you're putting once you start to learn the machine you know when you're putting that that curve what it does and you know that when it cuts it a thousand times it will be accurate within you know a couple of mil like a millimeter max like it's just super accurate and it just repeats the shape and when you scale a template we used to have to cut out different you know, wood templates to fit onto the the CAM, like these old bandsaw cutters and that, it was a bloody nightmare. But the CNC, you can just scale it based on the, the CAD program. It just scales at yeah, 41, book move that to forty one, it incrementally changes all the dimensions of the board. I mean you can replicate it. So you go from a thirty six to a forty five, it's incrementally scaled up based on the CAD program, which is awesome.
1: That's epic. So, yeah, yeah I, I get you. So, if I'm going, yeah, like a 39 into a 43, you're going to get Ryan Hardy's shape as you move for the um, further up in the, the size rank.
0: Yeah. And that's mathematics. You just times it. Up. You basically go like 41 divided by 42. You get an increment there. Then you just do all the measurements. It'll do the same thing on a calculator, but this does it automatically for everything at the same time. So, so uh,
1: on your laptop cool. at home and at work, do you have – all of the pro rider shapes and and yeah yep like I'm that. sitting in front of
0: a computer now and I've probably got oh, ten thousand templates
1: and Wooster, uh, ten thousand templates.
0: Yeah that it sounds a lot but what happens is that like you know let's say if we look at um NMD right let's look there and we go bear with me as I fart through the screens. But um yeah so it, let's say you got a Ben player right so Ben player has uh we've got a few different shapes as the years progress, you know, but the most current template that we have, we have, you know, in the crescent, what have we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We've probably got 20 different sizes. So you've going 38.5, you know, 38, sorry, 36.5, 38, 38 38.5, 39, 39 39.75, blah, 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 all the way up to 45. And then you've got, you know bat, bat tails and you've got Wi fly tails then you've got other tails then we have different templates for different cores and that's one person but if you go through all the different templates for the boards because the other thing is that the company that I work for in Indonesia produces for a lot of other brands which some people know other people don't know but um, I can't sort of talk too much about that otherwise you get people's noses out of joint but the companies that we work for, you, yeah, you've got NMD, which might have, I don't know, three, 2,000, whatever, and then you multiply it by everybody else because that's where it gets up there.
1: Yeah, wow. These numbers are kind of blowing me away. I did not think that in one model you would have that many variations of the sizes and specs, you know, like not not to say that I think things have – been simplified over time and, and recently, you know, more so with like some of the bigger brands being the only ones producing boards, but like that is in depth, you know, you must have your work cut out for you day in, day out to even just make sure you're producing the right bo- board. Yeah. It's, you know? it's,
0: it's, um yeah, it's pretty rad. Like the, the production specs for, yeah for, for one order are pretty full on. Yeah. It's just, it's pages, but it's I've got to make it easy for the guys in the factory to read. So they're they're pretty good. They're pretty awesome. You know, after 21 years up there, they're pretty awesome at what they do. I've got really like Dan's my right hand man, and he's always on top of things. And then I've got a really good production management team, which um, you know, as they always say, employ someone that can do things better than you. And uh, these guys have got university degrees, and they understand manufacturing. So they don't necessarily understand bodyboards. They've learned as it's gone along, but they understand manufacturing so having these guys on board i've got dwee and julie's two production guys are just awesome and um fully trust with what they do and as i talked to you before we started here like with the whole covid thing um i've been going backwards and forth between it uh aussie and um so i was there for two years with the wife uh came back when my kids were born just to segue a bit and um and then when the kids were young, we went up back up there for six years, so sort of on and off for those first sort of 10 years. But when the kids came back to Oz for school, um, I started going month, Indonesia month, uh, Avoka, but still working from home. And then when COVID hit, um, I was here for two years. And what that taught me was that, you know, to let go, uh, not micromanage as much, and it gave Dan a chance to sort of do his own thing without the micromanager mayors just over the top of them all the time telling them how it was going to be so uh yeah it made me pull back a bit and let these guys do what they're actually you know best at and um yeah they did a bloody good job and uh yeah and as as i say with the production specs and that i create all that for the guys because i kind of understand dan and myself understand the end product and exactly what it's going to look like whereas these guys will understand various components of it so um yeah, it's in depth, but they understand it, and it goes into different departments, and they read the different codes or the thicknesses or the nose cuts or the concaves or whatever, and they just take care of that part based on codes, and it all comes together. So it's yeah, it's not it's not always a hundred percent, you know. You always get stuff ups like it's inevitable, but these guys are pretty good.
1: Yeah, wow, man, and it's it's taken quite a of time to get a, a well oiled machine you know, going, and I can only imagine that because of translating your brain um, and your ideas out towards um, a staff cohort that, that needs to produce the product down on the factory floor. Do do you ever look back over the small empire you've created and just think to yourself, like, you know, why, how, and, and, um, and what's next? Do, Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it just seems like it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, I mean, like, just to speak about the quality of those boards, Nick, the ones we rode down at the n pool party, it was such a pleasure to hop on each and every one of them and just to see the different materials you've placed into the board, the size of the technology, all the different, you know, stringer components and um, the way you're even, like, channeling the water now through, like, mini quads and, and, um, and so many different features on the slick. Like, I was blown away, man. Like, what is next for you in your career
0: um yeah so the the uh well just for starters all those boards that you at the pool party um i obviously they were designed on the cad and you know some of the boards i sort of finished off and did that but for the base for the most part they were made by my staff and uh that's the sort of thing i'm most stoked with is that we like like you yeah, we make boards for Mike Stewart or we make boards for Ben Player or whatever, and they are made by my staff. I'm not touching those things. And that, you used to hear that back in the day that they, these guys are writing stock boards, which was all BS, but these guys are writing the actual board. So Ben's board that he rides at 41 and a half, um, is exactly the board that is on the shelf. You know, of course, sometimes we might you know, be stringerless or it might – um have a different nose curve on it. But for the most part, he can pick up a board off the shelf and ride that and Mike's exactly the same, you know? So um that's pretty rad. But to answer your yeah, the question. Full credit, for
1: the of, yeah, please please full credit usually, to the boards. That's insane. Full credit to the boards. Yeah, it is me. oh and full credit to the you know the boys. everything behind the scenes man. Like that 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 really doesn't happen. All the stories you're just speaking about prior um, about you know people getting boards made in different areas and putting stamps on other ones like you know that's that's so cool stockies weren't usually the um the board of choice for pros yeah well that, that's the, that those guys are mal like Mike
0: and ben they're you know, they're they're in their twilight years and I know like dan Dan Clves is sort of like this um you know he's a very particular um very accurate you know, shaper. Like, you know, he's, he's the best custom shaper in the world by a country mile. And uh, just based on results, like I know PMAs over there in the States does an awesome job and you know, Toddy Quigley and these guys all do awesome jobs. But if you look at the results and did would say the last 10 world champions, I guarantee that Dan's made at least nine of them, probably more. So he's still making custom boards for those guys that love the custom stuff. But from my side of things, I know that the accuracy we're getting from our factory that we're outputting is pretty damn good. So people say to me, oh, what's changed in 10 years, you know? And I'm going to say, well, what you're going to do is take a board from 10 years ago and take a board from now and you'll see the difference. Like it doesn't, it's one of those things like when a child grows, right? One minute they're like two foot tall next minute, they're six foot tall. It takes, or not next minute, yeah, as, pre- um, as they age, they get bigger and all of a sudden there's a six foot kid in front of you. It's the same with the body board. If you look at a board from ten years ago, you think, "Oh, not much has changed." Then you pick up a board that's that old and get one now, and you can see it. You can see the accuracy and the shape, the smoothness and the nose rocker, just the finish on the boards, the flex, how it feels, how they perform. And we sort of saw that with, um, again, in COVID, with all the vintage guys coming on board, and yeah, getting all these old boards that were great. But I did see a lot of commentary where the guys said, "I've just got back into bodyboarding." I love my Mark seven, but what do I buy? And someone says, you know, go buy a band player quad. And they get on this thing and go, Holy shit, this thing's a rocket, you know? And that's, that's the progression that we've had in the boards over the last say 10 years. And where in the future where it's going to go. It's, it's just a refinement. Like I don't have a grand plan of do this and that. And it's a five, two year plan, five year plan, 10 year plan. Um, we just got a new Arcu machine in last week. I was up, back up at the factory and an Arcu machine is, a, again, a surfboard shaping machine, but instead of using routers to cut the boards, it uses wheels and there's abrasive wheels. That's how we've got those contours in the boards. So well, six years ago, we got the first one and before that, channels were pretty much just, you know, the, the tapered channel that would start off with a, a narrow entry and go to a wide exit, your typical channel. And with the advent of the ARCU machine, we could do parallel channels. And I started to learn about concave. So I had all these different ideas and I had inspiration from surfboards and boats and different things. And it's just thinking, how can we adapt that and bring that into a bodyboard? And we have a few ideas that didn't work. So we change it. We do that. Yep, that worked awesome. But what happens if we refine that? And this is feedback with your team writers and you work on it and you get to a point where you start to see how it reacts, and um, and then we developed, like, yeah, we got the quad. And when we bought the quad out, we weren't the first people to have a concave, that's for sure, but we were the first guys to have a, a concave that people tried, loved, and realized that it made the board go faster. And then that started, like, I guess call it a revolution where everyone started having concaves, and that's awesome. Yeah? All these different brands have their different versions of a concave, and they all work differently, but it makes people think You know, 10 years ago, flat bottoms or channels. Now, you look at every brand, they've got different. You know, Hub's got five concave, a five channel concave. Hot Butter's got like a six one. You know, Mike's got his quad vent. You know, we've got our quads and mini quads. There's double concave, single concaves, all this different stuff that's opened this whole new spectrum of design. And it works. You know, it makes the boards perform better, which is the best part of it. What's the essential part of it?
1: Yeah. Most certainly. I, Only looking at the bottom of so many um, bodyboards these days, there's so many different tail designs and so many different so many different concaves in the bottom of the slicks. It blows my mind. Like I'm still um, on, I guess, uh, integrated slot channels at the moment, but I've got a bat tail. I've had quads before. I've really enjoyed them. Um, I mainly stick to clip crescent, but recently going on the bat, there's been so much more, um, so much more so much more flick, so much more release, so much more looseness. Um, Every time we go up to hit the lip or do a forward, it's just there for you. Um, Just the drive off the bottom's been incredible. You know, just the, yeah, just the subtle change in a tail shape has changed my view on bodyboarding lately. So it's not subtle though.
0: (laughs) That's the thing with a bat. Like everyone goes, that's just a bat tail. But if you actually have a crescent you know, so you take your crescent tailboard and you take your bat tailboard, and you, you know, you measure them from the nose, like just if they're both 42s, let's say, and you stack them up against each other slick to slick and you turn it to so the bat tails at the back and your crescent's at the front, you'll see how much more volumes at that tail. So you've got the crescent, which goes in, let's say it goes in two inches, and then your bat goes, you know, 42 right to the tip. So you've just increased that surface area through that tail area. So when you're driving off the bottom, you're driving off the rail, but it totally changes the, the dynamic of where you're turning because you've got all that board, you know, the, the bat tail, the orb of the bat tail is now in the water. So you have to drive hard to push down, and it changes the way you project. And as you say, you come off the bottom, you're pushing more water. So you're actually holding the higher line and you come up and bang, you get a bit more projection out of it. So, yeah, you know, it's the, the bat tails, and when you're down the line, the same thing, like you're not fully leaning on that, inside edge with within the wave face, you've got your tail and then the rail that's sticking in this. There's more contact and the way it makes you sit's different again. So it's subtle, yes, but when you look at the volume, it's you know it's significant.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, well, it's only evident in the way I've been surfing recently because I've had to adjust it so much that I can feel um, when I'm booging, sorry, that like, you know, you're, you're just sitting differently on the board. Um, you're Waiting or going earlier in certain situations, depending on you know how quickly you want to get up there, because you you are going quicker. You, you know, like when you are approaching the lip, you've got so much more, so much more. Yeah, as you said, surface area in the in the wave. But um it's been so cool to see, and I'm I'm only kind of harping on about this is because it's so nice to change up your equipment from time to time, and I think the wave pool also too was such an eye opener. Um, just be able to just try so many different so many different variations in a bodyboard where as you said, 10, 20 years ago it was just pretty stock standard and you weren't getting so many more um, so many more bursts of color. Because like honestly, like I, I I couldn't get enough of the boards I was trying down at the wave and I wanted I, I wanted to keep going and going and going. If there was another two or three hours, I would have happily stayed yeah. in there even though the cramps were taking over. Yeah, because... The four hours cooked me, Jesus. I was... Oh, mate. Farm. How was that, eh? Like, honestly, yeah. you know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach in, in that regard because you just want more and more and more. But towards the end, I, I was almost getting violently ill because I knew I was dehydrated. My calves are screaming. You don't float as much in that kind of pool water, and you yeah. um, keep seeing perfect waves like flow flow through. You know we it's had offshore winds all day. Yeah, my turn. Yeah. It's my turn. <laughs> ten, 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 ten. Yeah, you know, I can yeah. remember in, in the last session on the left, you and Rio getting a couple of smokers. Um, and it always seems like that left two when you paddle back out seems heavier than the right there at Urban yeah. Surf.
0: I love the you left. Know? It was it was my one. I, yeah, I I couldn't figure the right out. I was like, bugger this, and going back to the left. But um, yeah, the that was a cool day. Ball and, ball like,
1: kind of, that was of, a really man. cool
0: day. Like it was just um, when you've just got you know, boogers on there. We had both sides, and um, yeah, and the different boards, and like the vibe was was rare. We got you know, I didn't realize that the, you know, because when he goes, oh, it's going to be offshore. I'm like, it's a wave board. When he goes, no, no, it, it matters, and the temperature, you know, it was like. 32 degrees, whatever it was, and the water temp and that. So it was just, it was rad. But you know, obviously for ne- the next one, we sort of straight away we're all sitting there the next day, going like, right, we need to have, you know, two. It's got to be like two days. It's got to be, um, you know. So the first one, go and surf, then have that dinner we all had back at the, the place it was the across the road. You know, we had a dinner yeah. there, had some <laughs> beers, talking, fat, and then so back and, the that day, part and part go back and meet each other, eh? Like just. Go back and um, you know, discuss the boards and all that stuff. And then go back and have another bash at it the next day. So I think that's the plan, anyway.
1: Yeah, that's a great plan. I'm I'm signing up again and again and again. I was, I had the best time, and I've, I have encouraged so many other people to jump on board. I think Jackie Baker from Cronulla was pretty devoted. Couldn't get down there just because he was a fiend last time at the wave pool, and um. He snuck in so many different sessions throughout the day when me and my brother were like laboring trying to get extra sessions after our first two in the morning. We were that hooked. But going back and doing it for four hours in the morning, um, four hours in the afternoon, sorry, for the NMD pool party, it was pretty legit. Like it was almost like utopian because you really would just, you had the whole place to yourself. You had left and right going at both times. You just had everyone's froth meter going off the Richter. Yeah. And yeah, it was fully. Probably... Yeah, it was it was kind of special. It was like almost sharing perfect ways for four hours with just a select group of people, and no one was coming in. That was the best thing.
0: Oh, well, I just had this like, like, you know, when you like smile too much, like just the grin, you're just grinning too hard. It was like, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Like I've been on the Disco Biscuits, you know, the whole jaw the whole was like from laughing yeah, too yeah. hard. So it um, was locked up yeah yeah no it was it was rad so but it's just that thing like it was just you know like we do a pool party well shit and we just need to get a bunch of boards down there and let everyone go ham on it so yeah we're stoked with how it turned out and the footage you know we've seen a little teaser but the footage is pretty cool so and then like yeah for guys too like i mean because it wasn't cheap you know it was it was expensive for what it was um but if you're a middle aged guy and um, you're surfing with Ben Player or Dave Winchester. Like, you know, that was the first time Ben had surfed it and I still get mesmerized by watching those guys. You know, when he's golden balls, he just – he's a natural and Ben's just that performer, you know. He just, like, figures it out. Next minute, ARS's barrels, like, it's cool to watch. So you've got yourself getting barrels, having fun, testing balls, and you get to watch all these guys, like, um, you know, from the Grommies to the, you know, Charlie Holt and – Anthony and all that, you know, just doing their thing. And um, Kane, it was just great. And then you got Ben and Winnie at the pinnacle just watching what those guys do. You know, and then the drop knee guys were out there and yourself, all you guys are very skillful surfers. So everyone feeds off each other and, yeah, Rion and all these guys, like it was just rad.
1: Yeah, it it was. It was just, yeah, I'm – can't echo your sentiments even more from the um, earlier statement. Like you can't wipe the smile off your face. It was almost like a wedding day, you know, when yeah. you, I remember going to bed on my wedding day with my wife and we one of the major things we said was like you, your face was hurting and that was yeah, exactly, exactly
0: right. Yeah, that was it. What a felt like, Nico,
1: man. We, um, dude, I just, um, I don't want to wrap it up short, but I've got, um, you know, I've got, the family in the background here. I've got to start yep. keeping it down. The jobs sleep. Sure, but dude, I really just want to thank you for coming on the potty and, and spreading some wisdom to um to my ears and all the listeners' ears in regards to your journey and um, where all these amazing boards are being made currently and and what can we um you know kind of see in the future because because really, man, like I I know I said at the start of the potty, but I'm gonna say it again. You are a master craftsman and you produce some um, fucked our bodyboards that everyone should really appreciate and it's um it's great to have you in the sport and we want you to be in there for many years to come
0: well thank you for those words it's um yeah it's it's been yeah as you say 30 years so it becomes a body of work and uh yeah something you're actually proud of and you know all those little steps along the way is, is what makes it you know makes the journey and the experience and that and I mean but at the end of the day for me, like, you know, so like, like, as a father, not that I'm the father of all those guys, but just to see all those guys at an event stoked is like the best thing ever. You know, like, it's it's on craft you've created. I mean, you were riding Rossi's boards. That's awesome. You know, guys were riding all different boards, hubs and Hardys and, you know, Stewart Sciences and all that, but it doesn't matter because it's all the same thing. And that's the difference between bodybuilders and surfers, I think, is that. You know, when we get in a group like that, everyone's just pumped because you're like a brotherhood and sisterhood if the girls are there too. So, yeah, man, it's, it's um, thanks for having me and uh, let me talk too much and uh, get back to your family, Luke.
1: <laughs> mate, you did not talk too much. We could have done this three times over. But, yeah, I really appreciate it again, Nick, and speak to you soon, dude. Okay, mate. Thanks, Luke. Cheers, mate. Good job
0: It was all a pipe dream. Watching Body boarding up on TV. Deep at Reef, watching tension repeat.